0: We're focusing this summer on the concept of goodness. Um, I had never heard a a series done on goodness, but the beginning to this goes way back into early last year where we talked about Leviticus. And um, we did a series out of Leviticus, and we learned how wonderful and deep God's love is to take these slaves And move them away from civilization, out into the desert, and begin to teach them. And he promised them that they would become his priests. So when I came up here earlier and talked about the Trinity and Jesus being our priest, that's actually the foundation for where we're headed today. So Leviticus is more than a love story it was teaching the people what it meant to be priests it's the same covenant that peter quotes in 1 peter 2 we are god's special prized possession we are a royal priesthood priest to whom all of creation all of creation that's who we are his representatives on the earth for that purpose. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But Leviticus is even more than that. It's a blueprint. That's an image that I've used all year. It's a blueprint, but a blueprint's just a piece of paper. It needs a builder to turn it into something. And so that's what happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. That's why both Peter and Paul can refer to us as a spiritual temple, a spiritual house, a spiritual building. There's a lot of imagery around house, temple, and building in the, in the New Testament, and that's what's happening. Uh, this Holy Spirit is building this building that we call the church. And so us as a temple, uh, we as a temple, is very important. So I've said many times, how do you figure out what does that mean? We don't use temples in our culture today. Do we go look at a Hindu temple? I've been to many. I would advise against it. Do we look at a Buddhist temple? I would advise against it. I've been to many. Now we go back into the scriptures and we look at the Jewish temple. And we begin to learn things about what God made us for. For example, in the Jewish temple, this is where all the great festivals occurred. Three times a year shows you how good God was that he required the nation to gather three times a year and to celebrate incredible festivals around his blessing so that they were reminded as a nation of how good he is. We learned from the uh, rabbis that... These, some of these festivals will go on for eight days, and they would be singing and dancing around the candles uh, 24 hours a day, singing the praise psalms. And God promised when they gathered, he said, don't worry about your crops, don't worry about your animals, I will take care of them. And so the temple was a place of celebration. So when we look down here at the spiritual temple, which is us, that when the world looks at us, do they see us dancing and celebrating? Or do they see us abusing each other? You're not welcome in our church because of you fill in the blank. You're not like us, so stay out. That's exactly what the Jews did with this wonderful gift, and we do it today. When you come over here, they had the temple treasury. This is where the poor could come and have their needs met. So when the world looks at us, the spiritual temple today... Do they see us caring for the poor? Caring for the marginalized? Or do they see us infighting, arguing? What do they see? This is where the Jewish temple, if you had a dispute with a neighbor, you could come and get it resolved by priests who were supposed to guide you through the process of forgiveness, forgiveness, and reconciliation so when the world looks at the spiritual temple us today do they see us resolving our conflicts or as in the corinthian epistles are we suing each other and the courts open courts that's what the world sees and so the Jewish temple provides this wonderful picture of this house that God is building called the church. So we spent the rest of last year and this year so far looking at it. So for the summer, we're looking at goodness. And the reason why I picked goodness for our theme is another reason. If you're savvy and you're paying attention to what's going on in the church surrounding the West, uh, we, have, we have pastors following you every week now, being charged with abuse, everything from abuse to fraud, you name it, embezzlement, okay? Okay. Uh, and you know what? I'm okay with that. In fact, I have started praying every morning, Lord, clean house. As Peter said, let judgment begin with the household of God. Clean house. If that's what we have in the clergy, then clean house. And there's a lot of it happening, and I personally am grateful. Oh, it makes it a little tougher when I'm talking to non-Christians because they're also aware of it. Those who aren't members of the church, you know, they think of us as hypocrites. Let's be honest, we are not gonna lie about it. I try not to be, but I am. And and so it makes it tougher, but what it also does is it presents an option, an opportunity for us to be authentic. Because all of a sudden we stand out in a world of inauthenticity. So goodness is one of those concepts that belongs in the healthy church. It's important. Just the Hebrew word alone, tov, occurs more than 700 times in the Old Testament. God must think it's important to be good people because he himself is good. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. There it is. It's all over the Bible. Goodness. And what is it? And what is it? So today we're going to look at another aspect of what this goodness is. We've already looked at a healthy church that is, is a good church. They understand empathy, where you put yourself in the shoes of someone else. But you don't stop there. Compassion drives you to do something more about it. You want to get involved in their life of compa- through compassion, compassion. We looked at grace last week. That grace, we tend to think as, as Christians that grace is something that happens, it's one sided. We do receive grace freely, but in the ancient world, grace was necessarily reciprocal. You are given a gift, you are expected to respond to that gift. That was expected. And uh, in the patronage system of the Roman Empire, it looks like this. Maybe I'm wealthier than you, and so I give you a gift. From then on, you owe me your loyalty and your faithfulness. And if at any time you break it, oh, you're in trouble. Okay, now the grace we experience isn't like that. But it still has this reciprocal piece to it. We looked at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace... You have been saved. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. But then verse 10. Therefore, now that you've been given it, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared ahead of time. You see, there's the other side of the gift. So God gives the gift freely. And then he just kind of steps back and says, let's see what they're going to do. What are they going to do in their churches? Are they going to reciprocate by doing good works, which he's already prepared? That's goodness. That's goodness. So one of the reasons that I wanted to take a closer look at this was because when you look at the when you look at the churches that have failed, studies are now coming out. What are the attributes? What are the characters, the characteristics of those churches? One of them is they lack goodness in all of its various nuances, okay? They lack, they lack goodness. So today what I want to talk about is that it's, goodness is putting others first. That's what goodness is. It's putting others first. Okay? And you all know churches that, that don't do that. I mean, some of us here, one of our, one of our former members who we all love uh, went to a church, uh, joined staff, and he asked a question, a simple question. Are we allowed to invite people with a different sexual orientation into our church? And they got fired for asking the question. We don't want those people. You're not like us. Stay out. Boy, that's Jewish ideology in its worst form. You're not like us. Stay out. That's why Ephesians 2 says that Jesus came and broke down all those barriers so that everyone was welcome to come to the cross. Everyone. You know churches that their theology, their ideology, everything that they believe, their convictions are so strong That people, certain people aren't welcome. Okay, that's where the institution takes more, has more power and importance than the individual. And I'm going to argue today that that's the very opposite of the gospel. Not only is it that; it's the very opposite of the way Jesus lived life. He wasn't afraid to be with an adulteress. wasn't afraid to be with a prostitute. He wasn't afraid to be with the chief tax collector. He was, I mean, the list goes on and on. He wasn't frightened by that. He wasn't nervous. He wasn't threatened by that. It was just the opposite. Well, the same thing that they found in several of these churches is that leadership does the same thing. We want to protect. So it's very common, for example, to protect me as a senior pastor. Okay? Somebody makes an accusation against me, and the elders... I mean, it feels good. I'm not going to lie to you. The elders want to circle the wagons and protect me. And we've been talking about that all year, that no, 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 no. No, I don't need protection. I don't need your defense. The moment you defend me, you're defending against someone else. My integrity will stand on its own. I don't need defense. So when someone makes an accusation... Your job as elders is to protect the flock. Go run to that person. One of the things they learned with Bill Hybels, some of you may have followed the story. It's all public. You can go look at the videos of it. One of the things they learned is that he was accused of uh, sexual issues, okay? Six women, six or seven women came forward and did that. So the elders did a quick study, and the elders and the staff stood up there one day and say, we support our pastor. We don't believe them. That's fatal. That's not defending the flock. That's not defending people who are hurting. That's defending a pastor. It wasn't much longer after that, after they did and brought in an independent company to analyze it, that they all stood up and said, We were wrong. The whole elder board resigned. That's disaster. So I've talked to the elders. My integrity will stand on its own. If I'm in trouble, then you're going to have to work with me and help me. You're not there to protect me, you're there to protect the flock. That's why Jesus could look over Jerusalem and weep because they're sheep without a shepherd. I don't need defense, I'm a man of integrity. It'll stand on its own. Run and help the person that has been hurt, whatever that looks like. But they quickly learned that these churches, they form this characteristic where the institution came first, and we're going to circle the wagons to protect it as opposed to you as individuals come first, and we're going to run to your aid, whatever it is. That's why we exist. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why Jesus did not mind hanging out with prostitutes, adulteresses, tax collectors, people that were cheating people. He didn't mind that at all. You see, when the needs of people come first, we're creating a church of dignity and respect. And when we create a church where the institution comes first, boy, we are in such great risk. Now we see it pretty clearly coming out of these churches. So what does a uh, people-centered culture look like? Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, let us make humans in our image. Do you ever think about the fact that you're made in the image of God? How does that distinguish you from these birds? I hear all the time, well, we have a soul. They don't. That's not true. The Hebrew word nephesh is applied to every creature in creation that has breath. That's not it. You see, what's different is that we have a different purpose and we have a different relationship. We are to care for these birds. Our dog is getting very, very old now. Very old. And we see him starting to fail quickly not going to lie, brings tears, and I like to hold him and just say, we're going to be with you to the end. It's okay. You know, when my first wife died, I just held her and said, I'm I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be with you to the end. And you see, when we begin to look at what image bearing means, we have a different responsibility. We are to reflect this Trinity, this triune God. To a world that is broken and fallen. That's our job. And that's at the heart of us. So what does that mean? Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image. We are made in the image. He is the image of the invisible God. You know what that means? Christ is the true human. Because that's what we were created for. To reflect that image. That's what dignity is all about. You see, dignity is a uniquely Christian concept. I teach in Hindu countries. I've been teaching for over 20 years in Hindu countries. They don't even have the image. They don't even have the concept or the language to understand dignity. So when I work with these young pastors, we have to create a whole new concept called dignity. You know what dignity is? You're made in the image of God, and you get to choose. The very first thing God did was let you choose. You see, the one thing I don't have any power over at all, none, and God's not going to share it with me, I can't convict any of you of sin. I can't redeem any of you, and I can't transform any of you. What's left? I can love you. That's the only thing that's left. And as pastors try to engage in in responsibility that's not theirs, it resorts, it, it, it begins to move them towards some form of manipulation. Okay, I, I don't personally care what sin you're involved in, except to know as a pastor how to help you. I think I've heard it all after 40 years, over 40 years. I think I've heard everything in the world that there can be heard. And I'll be honest with you, at my age, it tires me out. Because I prayed many, many, many decades ago that Jesus would teach me who he died for and I just said this week okay Lord I'm getting a pretty good idea can we stop? (laughs) I'm weary it's so easy to get weary there's nothing that you're doing that is new under the sun nothing whatsoever the stories are repeated over And over and over again. It's my 45th year as a Christian. And the stories are repeated over and over and over again. Don't stay there, please. Don't be ashamed. Please, come. As Jesus said in Luke 6, no judgment, no condemnation. What you'll get for me is laughter. Oh, no, wait. Sometimes I do chuckle, why you got yourself in a real mess, don't you? No, what you get is grace and response. Let me walk with you on the journey. Let any of our staff or elders walk with you on the journey to a better place. That's dignity. So you will always come first, always, always. That is one of the markers of a truly good church, is that you will always come first because that's what we see in Jesus. But this whole process of transformation of which I have no control over, I get to use my gifts. I I made the statement a couple times that all the main verbs in the second half of Ephesians are walking verbs but one. And think about walking in the ancient world. Paul walked 14,000 miles, and you can't get anywhere very fast. You just walk. It requires patience, something we don't have in our culture today. I mean, we like, uh, we like a hamburger in about 30 seconds at McDonald's. We like rice that can be done in one minute. One of my good friends is Japanese, and we introduced him to his wife and married him, and she made one minute rice, and he looked at it the first time and said, what on earth is this? And went and threw it out and said, let me show you how to make rice. <laughs> but we like, we like everything instant, don't we? Like that. Okay? But what you get with these walking verbs Nothing is instant and God is not in a hurry. He's simply not in a hurry. And that is grace. Because he walks with you in your mess, your sin, your woundedness, your brokenness, your hurts. He's very patient because he gives you freedom. And he nudges you and he convicts you. He does all those things. My, I get the good part just like you do. I get to walk with my friends in their mess. And then one day the Holy Spirit shoves them in the ditch. That's called conviction. Yes. I'm telling you, when that happens, when I'm with people, I get goosebumps. I get to do the good part. Let me help you out of the ditch. That's why I said, if you're stuck in your sin, don't stay there. No shame, no judgment, no condemnation. Come. Come get help. Paul talks about this quite a bit in 2 Corinthians, but it has to do with image-bearing and who we are. Because, you see, every human, there's no human who's static None. You're either moving toward Christ or you're moving away from Christ. Every human. The move toward Christ is you're becoming more human, more generous, more gracious, more kind. To move away from Jesus, you're moving less in all those categories. There comes a point where you're probably not even going to be recognized as human anymore. You keep this up for a whole lifetime at the end of life, what would what would you call human in that? You can't stay where you are. There's not, that's not an option, okay? So Paul talks about what that looks like in 2 Corinthians in verse, in chapter 3, verse 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Okay, you know what happens when the veil is taken away? You can begin to see the reality of who you are. That's what you can see. Sadly, you can also see the reality of who everyone else is. Now we got the problem with the log in the eye, Okay. And so, you got, that's a real problem. But he goes on. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Okay, now listen for the Trinity here. The Lord is the Spirit. Okay? And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Galatians reminds us not to use our freedom for sin. But here he's talking about this transformation process. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. As we move toward Jesus, we're being transformed into that perfect human that God designed us to be. Don't worry, the rain's not coming yet. But then he goes on, talks about in chapter 4, verse 4 the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the image and we are being transformed into this image. Now, since I have no control over conviction uh, or redemption or transformation, I don't control the rate at which you grow. That's not my business. I've watched people repent in 30 seconds and I've watched them in 20 years, 30 years. And I've watched some are still on that road 40 years later. But we don't ever give up, do we? I don't. I don't. This is why Paul can say... Oh, let me finish this. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. I thought he just said, the Lord is the Spirit. We just introduced the Trinity here. This is why Paul can say, in 2 Corinthians 5, a famous verse, if anyone is in Christ... They are a what? New creation. The old is gone. The new is here. This is our reality. Do you know the verse before? It's actually a better verse. Based on this, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. There's no more scarlet A for adultery. That's why Jesus didn't mind hanging out with an adulteress. Scarlet, no more scarlet P for prostitution. That's why I didn't mind hanging out with that. No more scarlet H for homosexuality, because Paul says a little bit later, and that's what you guys were, but you've been washed and cleansed by Jesus. And the only metric we have now in today's world is a simple one: Do you know Christ or not? If not, why not? Why not? You see, that's putting people first. Some of you have heard my story. My first wife, uh, she had cystic fibrosis. She was near the end. She got pregnant. Uh, Yeah, it was by me. She got pregnant. We used three forms of birth control, and she still got pregnant. They tried every single day to get her abort, and the conversation was the same every day. Her doctor would walk in, and he'd say, Judy, please, please, please let us abort this child. Nope. If God wants to uh, take my life, He's welcome to do it. By the way, do you know Jesus yet? I heard this over and over and over from her and him. This conversation every day. Okay, now she had a daughter and then she went to be with the Lord. I have a daughter, celebrated her 40th birthday yesterday. We had a funeral saying farewell to youth. 40 of us got together wearing black. It's fantastic. And my four grandkids are running around just hugging me. Papa, I just love you. Papa this, Papa that. Papa, watch me do this. Papa, watch me do this. Okay, not too long ago, I was down at the hospital where she died. I hadn't been back. And I looked up her doctor and had a chance to visit with him. He's very old now. Now he's got a cane. He walks out. He's like this. He's a pulmonologist. Mr. Howard, how's your daughter? said she's healthy as can be. Twinkle in his eyes. I came to Christ because of your wife. That's dignity. That's faithfulness that's obedience that's respect the only metric we have it has nothing to do with whatever sin you're engaged in none whatsoever the only metric we have is do you know Christ yet? if not, why not? if you do, how do we help you on this journey? to me, that's goodness that's what goodness is all about and this is Trinitarian. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 3 there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ. Everyone is welcome in our church. That doesn't mean we let sin go, but we're not condemning it. You know how we deal with sin? Over coffee. That's why I've had 5,000 coffees. <laughs> Because sin doesn't make you happy. At some point, the Lord's going to do his work, and you're going to want to have coffee and say, my life is a mess. I'm sleeping with another woman. Yeah, I bet your life is a mess. Okay? I've heard that several times. Wish I could tell you all the things I've heard, but I can't. That's when we deal with sin. That's when the Holy Spirit makes it very real because it's no longer meeting the need that you're after. Sin makes you unhappy. And guess what? there is an answer. It's called God. So we started today, I wanted to remind you of the Trinity. When we worship, we celebrate all that God has done through Jesus in our lives for our benefit. It's a response to say, God, thank you. And now we're going to close our time with an offering and communion, both are acts of worship. And we're going to stop and say, God, thank you for all that you've done. Again, let me reiterate whatever the sin is that you struggle with, I don't personally care, except as a pastor to know how to bring healing and help you on that journey. But don't stay there. That is a church that puts people first. Don't stay there. And I want our elders to run to every one of you that's in trouble. And if I have somehow hurt or offended you, I trust our elders to come back and say, you did something you shouldn't have done because I want to be a person of integrity. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, thanks for holding off the rain for just a little bit uh, because we love worshiping you out here. And Lord, as we get ready for uh, the offering, even that is a response and gratitude for the way you have blessed us. Thank you for the the material things you have given us so that we can share with others. And Lord, as we move toward communion in just a little bit, it's another way of saying, God, thank you for the work that you've done. We are grateful. We pray these things in your son's name because we believe in him. Amen.